Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This week, author Carol Reardon discusses her book, Pickett's Charge in History and Memory. Carol Reardon, author of Pickett's Charge in History and Memory. On page four of your book, you say, the story of Pickett's Charge has found itself suspended precariously between the two realms of history and memory. What's the difference between history and memory? Well, that's a trap that many historians fall into without even trying to very hard. History is what we seek to write. History is objective. It's uh, truth-seeking, hopefully truth-finding. We always try to find the truth free of bias. We try to be as accurate as we possibly can. We hope to come up with the ultimate story uh, without any of the frills, without any uh, unknowns, with as little haziness as possible. But unfortunately, in the process, we sometimes fall into that, trip, that trap called memory. Memory is a lot more subjective, oftentimes self-serving, oftentimes self-promoting as well. And what we often run into uh, when we use the stuff of history, the letters, the diaries, the newspaper accounts, all those kinds of things, we find people who are not necessarily writing to preserve the, the truth of history, but a story they wanted to tell or a story they wanted to put themselves into. And what we end up with in many cases are not the, the kinds of historical records that will give us a nice, clean, objective, true story. Sometimes we have what one soldier referred to as a bunch of disconnected threads. And somehow we have to take those disconnected threads, uh, evaluate them, analyze them, try to figure out how much is truth and how much is memory, weave them all together and hope we come up with something that looks like a complete whole cloth that might be history, but probably isn't. Now, you talk in the book about how uh, each soldier only saw a small portion of the battle, so you're seeing a lot of different uh, segments of the battle. How do you take that, the different snapshots, plus the distortions of memory, and, and come up with something that you think is accurate? Well, that's one of the greatest challenges. I, I've come to believe, after writing this book, that we as military historians, when we try to write about combat, don't do it very well. We tend to use a soldier's diary or a soldier's letter fairly uncritically because we figured, hey, he was there. He can tell us exactly what went on. But a soldier only saw really what was immediately around him. We learn more and more when, as we study military psychology and military sociology that many times a, a soldier's world in combat compresses to his immediate surroundings. He could see perhaps what was happening to himself and maybe to two or three guys on either side of him, but he didn't see a whole lot more. If we have a private who's talking about grand movements of brigades and divisions, he's probably uh, resting on information he heard from other soldiers or something he read in the newspaper because there's one thing for sure, he didn't see all that. And, and that gets to be a problem. If we're quoting privates when we're talking about the movement of brigades, that shouldn't pass our test of intellectual rigor. But we do it all the time because it's really hard to pass up a good story. And that's oftentimes what the privates give us as well. Are there some 
diaries or people who kept diaries during the war or during this battle that that have become famous that are the the, the prominent diaries or well the most prominent of them all was a lieutenant who served right uh, very close to where we are right now he was an unusual man named Frank Haskell came from Wisconsin he was a first lieutenant a 35-year-old first lieutenant, very old for a, an officer of that rank. He was a staff officer to General Gibbon, the division commander who commanded the Union line right where we're sitting right now, today. And th he was a very unusual man, the right man in the right place at the right time. He was the only man on this line during the defense of Pickett's charge who had a horse that hadn't been shot. And so he was very mobile and very visible, riding up and down this line, uh, passing on the word to hold tough or bringing up uh, reinforcements from other parts of the line. He gets cited in all kinds of uh, official reports afterwards. When President Eisenhower used to come here, uh, one of the people he liked to talk about was Lieutenant Haskell, saying sometimes it's not the actions of generals that win battles or even affect battles. Sometimes it's the initiative shown by a first lieutenant. But probably the most amazing thing that Lieutenant Haskell did after the battle was he sat down and he wrote uh, a letter to his brother. Somebody described it as the longest letter that a brother ever wrote to a brother. It actually became published, uh, became published and has become a standard work. It's just his description of Pickett's Charge and the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg. And it's absolutely amazing for the emotion it evokes, for the descriptiveness of his prose, for his ability to put um, faces on some of the people that he sees around here. You don't get the feeling that he's talking about blocks of faceless men as he's rushing them up to the angle. What you get the feeling is uh, he, he knows he's dealing with human beings. He knows that the life of the Republic may be hanging by a spider's thread, as he says at one point. He's not famous like General Lee or General Meade is famous. But for those of us who are students of Gettysburg, uh, Lieutenant Haskell is probably the most famous person who leaves, leaves us a wonderful diary of what happened here on that day. Where's his diary right now? Where's the letter? Uh, the, I don't know exactly where the uh, original letter is, but it was originally published by the Wisconsin Historical Commission. Um, or that was the first time that an awful lot of the uh, American people got a chance to read it. And that was close to the turn of the century. It was apparently published privately a little bit earlier, but not too many people got a chance to see it then. When it first came out, it created a storm of protest, especially among um, some of the Pennsylvanians who defended the stone wall right in this area. Uh, he, he had some very nasty things to say about those Pennsylvanians. He said that they broke and ran. And of course, no Pennsylvanian at this place on this day ever wanted to admit that. So uh, they got into a bit of a literary war with him. It was kind of funny in, in, in retrospect, but I'm sure the veterans didn't think it was funny at all. What state was he from? He was from Wisconsin. And if, if someone wanted to read that now, could they find it? Oh, sure. It's, it's become such a standard that it's been reprinted in paperback in a, a variety of different uh, places. So the person you're looking for is a, a man by the name of Frank Haskell, H-A-S-K-E-L-L. -L, and it's well worth the time invested in reading it. Now, we are sitting here at Gettysburg, and over your shoulder is the high watermark, the copse of trees. And first of all, your book is not about the Battle of Gettysburg. Right. Um, but to set a kind of a baseline here, can you talk a little bit about Pickett's Charge and uh, how it came to be? Sure. Um, the, at this point, this is July 3rd, 1863. The Battle of Gettysburg has been going on for two days at this point. Uh, no decision has been reached. On the morning of July 3rd, Robert E. Lee has to figure out what he's going to do on this third day of battle. He considered the first two days successful. 
Uh, the first day, he was able to clear, uh, clear through the town. He was able to uh, establish a strong defensive position on Seminary Ridge. The Union forces uh, created a, a fishhook-shaped position here on Cemetery Ridge, where we are right now. On the second day of the battle, uh, Robert E. Lee tested the flanks of, of this Union position, and he made some progress on both flanks. On the morning of July 3rd, his original intention was to try to take advantage of the, pro of the progress he had made on July 2nd and perhaps break the Union line and, and send the Army reeling out of Gettysburg and perhaps win a major victory. But that didn't happen. Uh, some fighting broke out on uh, the Union right flank over on Culp's Hill at about 4.30 in the morning. And the fighting went on there uh, very intensely until almost 11 o'clock in the morning. And Robert E. Lee became convinced that uh, the Union must have reinforced its flanks over the course of the evening, otherwise that fight wouldn't be so intense. So Robert E. Lee had to reconsider his plans. And what he decided was simply, if the flanks are so strong, there must be a weak spot somewhere, and the only place the line can be weak would be in the center. We're in the center of the Union line right now. Pickett's charge was not Lee's original plan. The charge that became known as Pickett's charge was not the original plan for July 3rd. It was his backup plan, his plan uh, that he adopted after his original notions fell through. When he decided to do this, uh, he had reasons to believe that it would succeed. One of the last attacks on July 2nd involved a brigade of Georgians, about 1,500 strong, who came across the Emmitsburg Road and charged up to where we are right now. Uh, according to the commander of the brigade, they actually broke through this line and captured a little bit of the artillery. But because there was only 1,500 of them and it was late in the day, they had been forced to pull back. By tradition, Robert E. Lee had heard about this attack and, and had, had been told, uh, by, by the brigade commander, I got up there with 1,500 men. And Lee is supposed to have said, well, if 1,500 men could make it, imagine what I could do with 15,000. There was reason, Lee thought, I'm, I'm sure he thought, that this could succeed. He had incredible faith in his men to do what seems to be impossible. There are other places on this battlefield where his men made entirely successful infantry charges over expanses of ground, much like we see around us here, and did so successfully. Uh, it's very easy to stand here and say, oh, this looks like suicide, this looks impossible. But Lee didn't think so, and a lot of his folks, a lot of his troops with him didn't think it was impossible either. Tough? Sure, they thought it would be tough. Did they think they'd take losses? Absolutely. But did they think it was impossible? No. How long a march was it from the time they came out of the trees on the far side of the field to the, to the Union line? We only have one statement of time, and I tend to think that this is more an apocryphal story than not. But there's supposed to be a story uh, of one soldier in the 9th Virginia Infantry who is supposed to have said as they're approaching the stone wall, how it's fantastic. It's only taken us 20 minutes to get here. Right after that, he was supposed to have been ki killed by a shell fragment. And that's almost a little bit too nice and neat a package to believe, absolutely. But I've brought many groups across this field, and it does take about 20 minutes. If you're, on, if you're making a straight line from over at the Virginia Monument over to where we are right now. The problem with that is that's not really the way the attack took place, and even though that is the, the image that's probably in your mind and probably in the mind of most of the viewers. One of the things I've learned is almost everybody has an image in mind of what Pickett's Charge probably looked like. And it probably includes long straight lines of men almost as on dress parade because that's what you would have seen in almost uh, all of the accounts right after the battle. But it, uh, it was a lot more complicated than that. And that's, just, that's one of the things that I've had to deal with as I've tried to unravel the story and separate the history and the myth of Pickett's Charge.
Did they walk or run? They walked. Why did they walk? Well, and this is, they weren't doing, out of, doing it out of bravado, and they weren't doing it just to show that they were gutsy or anything like that. One of the most important things to remember about Civil War infantry tactics is that the individual soldier was not a trained marksman. They don't go out like modern soldiers do and spend hours at a rifle range learning how to shoot their rifles. What you had to do in the Civil War was to line your troops up in a long straight line so that when the time came, you could deliver a volume of fire. Uh, have a nice long straight line that you could command and, and control if you're the commanding officer, and on your command, yell fire and thousands of rifles fire at one time. That might cause destruction. That might uh, break the Union line. Uh, so that's why you want to have these nice long formations. If your troops run, you're not going to keep that formation. If, if your troops um, become disorganized by artillery, they probably won't keep that, or that organization. Your job as a commander is to try to keep them in line. Your job as a soldier is to keep your ranks closed up so that you have somebody on your right shoulder and somebody on your left. And uh, when you get to this point out here in the field and, and your commander yells fire, you deliver that fire. Uh, you can't do that if everybody's running. You have to walk. It's not because it, anybody thought that this was going to be a parade or they weren't doing it out of Napoleonic bravado or anything of the sort. This was the way you had to do it, to be an effective infantry unit when the time came. Now, as we said earlier, over your shoulder is the thing called the copse of trees. I want to ask about that word, copse. Was that a word that was used more in the 19th century than it is today? About the only time I've ever seen the word used consistently, it concerns that clump of trees right there. And uh, I don't know if it's used all that much more frequently. There are clumps of trees on other battlefields. I've occasionally seen re references to a copse here and there on other fields, but just as often on battlefield maps of, of Gettysburg, this is a clump and not a copse. <laughs> Now, also, on the other side of it is the, uh, the angle. Can mm -hmm. you explain what the angle is and, sure. and the significance of the copse of trees? Well, the copse of trees itself was supposed to have been the aiming point for uh, the, the Confederate artillery. It was considered to, to mark the center of the Union line. And uh, before Pickett's charge was going to start off, Robert E. Lee intended to soften up the resistance here a little bit by uh, launching an artillery bombardment, almost something evocative of World War I than the Civil War. But uh, that was to be the aiming point. Um, right outside this clump of trees is a stone wall. It proceeds from the south of us here, runs up uh, along um, a line where you can, that follows these Union monuments that, that we see right here. And then just beyond the clump of trees, it move, it, uh, the stone wall turns east or to the right for another 100 yards or so, and then it resumes its northward trail again. Uh, that created an angle in the wall, and it made it a little bit difficult for the Union commanders to form an effective defense because there, there couldn't be one consistent line. You wanted to take advantage of walls and fences because it provided some cover for your troops, but in this case it was a little bit difficult because part of your line is on uh, a line that's not really at the crest of Cemetery Ridge, but then after the uh, wall makes an angle, then you have a second line a little bit farther back that continues north up toward Cemetery Hill but that creates the angle that everybody's familiar with. Who owned the land here? This land uh, belonged to a variety of farmers. Uh, we, have a, we have a farm right over here to our, uh, our west. Uh, the Kadori farm is over there. Uh, so many of these fields belong to the Kadori farm. Uh, there is a little farmhouse just north of us on the other side of the trees that's known to history as the Bryan farm. Uh, that was a, a farm, the Bryans were tenant farmers. He was an African-American farmer. 
uh, here on, on the battlefield. Uh, the Bryants left. I don't know where the Kadoris were at the time, but uh, these, were, these were actively farmed fields, and there were several more fields farther down the Emmitsburg Road, which is right off to our, our west here. Uh, this was active farm country, uh, the kind of territory where an infantry assault, uh, it just seems perfect territory for an infantry assault. But what makes this territory right around here a little bit different from a lot of the other battlefields that these armies have fought on is that um, there aren't quite as many trees. If you went back to Chancellorsville or if you take a look at the Wilderness or Spotsylvania or a lot of the other big battlefields, you don't often have these kinds of expanses of, of, of land that, are, that offer a uh, wide field of observation. Even a battlefield like Antietam, which uh, was also open farmland, is a whole lot more rolling so that the battle seems far more compartmentalized. Here at Gettysburg, it almost seems like you're looking out on the scene of a grand drama, and you're seeing it on a grand scale. Cecil B. DeMille would love this kind of a fil uh, field to film on. Do you remember the first time you came here? Absolutely. It was 1963. It was uh, the year of the centennial. I was about as excited as, as a little kid could be. How Couldn't sleep you? the night before. I would have been um, 11. And I was coming down here with some neighbors. Uh, all the kids were Civil War buffs. Their father was a Civil War buff. Everybody was into history. Uh, I remember being so excited that I started taking pictures even before we got to the battlefield. The sign saying, you're 10 miles from Gettysburg. I have pictures of the whole thing. It was just an exciting time for me. I've been here several hundred times since then and I learn something new every time I come. What's something you just learned? Well, the kinds of things that I've been learning recently uh, involved with uh, especially the research for this book. Um, I've been learning how to use this battlefield as a research tool in itself. A whole lot of people who write military history write it simply from the sources, the, le the letters and the diaries, and they don't use the most obvious research tool of, uh, itself, and that's this battlefield. One of the things I made myself do over the course of writing this book was to put myself in the position of every one of those soldiers who I quote. If I'm quoting a soldier from the 20th uh, Massachusetts Infantry, and we're sitting in the 20th Massachusetts Infantry line right now, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to ask questions of myself. What can I see from here? What can't I see from here? Could this officer who wrote this, uh, this letter have seen what he says he, he saw? And if he stays within his, uh, his, his regimental line, some of these soldiers are writing about things that they really couldn't have seen. The land around here rolls a whole lot more, and it, an awful lot of them obviously added to uh, added some uh, special uh, commentaries into their accounts, their letters, probably from taking a walk up and down the line after the battle was over or something like that. But one of the things I learned is to uh, let the battlefield itself, let the terrain itself uh, help me tell my story. And that's one of the most important lessons I learned recently. Now, this is a book that uh, came out recently, Oxford University Press, The Gettysburg Nobody Knows. And you are a contributor to this. And your article is essentially The Pickett's Charge Nobody Knows. Right. What can you tell us about Pickett's Charge that nobody knows? Well, one of the things that always intrigues me is the fact that we have this attack that's called Pickett's Charge. They always say that, that the winners get to write the history. But in this case, you have a situation where the losers seem to get all the attention. This is Pickett's Charge. Uh, George Pickett. Uh, and his Virginia division um, are a big part of this, but they aren't the whole story. And to the extent that, any, that most people write about this charge, they usually still write about it from a Confederate perspective. And usually the part that nobody knows is the fact that uh, 
Pickett's men were only were, were less than half of the assaulting force. That there were uh, troops from North Carolina and Alabama and Tennessee and Mississippi under Generals Pettigrew and Trimble, who were also part of this attack. And up until recently, that's been the Gettysburg, the part of Pickett's charge that nobody knows, although we sort of did know it. The purpose of this essay was a little bit different. Uh, I decided to take a look at Pickett's charge from the Union perspective. You always hear about Pickett's charge, but you never hear about Hancock's defense. You can go out and find uh, Pickett's charge t-shirts. You can find, uh, there's a, a great t-shirt that lists, just like David Letterman's show would have, the top 10 reasons why Pickett's charge failed. But poor General Hancock and his second corps in the Union uh, defense um, never gets that much attention. So what I decided I would do if we were going to pursue this theme that Gettysburg nobody knows is simply to take a look at this great grand charge through the eyes of uh, the northerners, the northern press, the northern veterans, the northern uh, soldiers, uh, what the northern veterans would say when they came here 25, 30 years later, how they wanted us to remember their defense, even though everybody else already remembered the charge. And it turned out to be a very interesting spin on what we thought was a very well-known subject. Well, you um, talk about the fact that after the battle, <clears throat> the northern press turned Hancock into a hero. Uh, mm -hmm. Did he deserve it? Oh, absolutely. Winfield Scott Hancock uh, was fighting his first battle here as a corps commander. Hancock had already made a name for himself as a brigade commander on the peninsula back in 1862. He fought one of the most distinguished actions that gets absolutely no attention at the Battle of Chancellorsville, the battle just before Gettysburg. He was a man on the rise, and he has a whole lot to do with what happens here. Uh, he is commanding on July 3rd, not just the 2nd Corps, we're in the 2nd Corps line now, but also part of the 3rd Corps after, after, also the 3rd Corps after the 3rd Corps commander uh, went down. General Hancock was very visible on this field. He, during the bombardment preceding the attack, he actually rode up and down his line on, a hor on his horse. And his staff officers were absolutely appalled, and they'd say, General Hancock, please get down off your horse. And he said, uh, there are times when a corps commander's life doesn't mean quite as much. And it was more important to him to steal his troops for what was going to come. I think General Hancock appreciated something that most people who come to Gettysburg don't appreciate. I think he knew what his men were feeling. One of the things, you had asked me, what did I learn recently? One of the things that I've begun to appreciate from reading diaries where the soldier made his entry on July 3rd is that the Union soldiers here on this line were not absolutely confident that they could stop Pickett's charge. If you watch the movie Gettysburg, or if you read a whole lot of books about Gettysburg, you always hear the comment made by a soldier of our 20th Massachusetts here. As soon as we saw them coming, we knew it would be Fredericksburg all over again. And in the Gettysburg movie, there's even a scene of the Union soldiers standing up and yelling, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. What they're trying to do is to remind the Confederate soldiers of what had happened about six months earlier at Fredericksburg, Virginia, when the Union made a charge and the Confederates just blew them apart. And it made it sound very much like the Union always knew that they could win this one and that it was a slaughter and the Union forces couldn't wait for the Confederates to get here and, and exact a certain amount of revenge for, for, for the Fredericksburg battle. Well. What's pretty clear from the diaries is that the soldiers who were here on July 3rd didn't feel that way. Uh, there was a soldier up the line of peace who said, um, when I saw the Confederates in their long lines coming at us almost like automatons, a wonderfully northern idea, <laughs> he, he would say, I thought that a future in Libby Prison, the great Confederate prison down in Richmond, was, was very certain for me and my men. Another New York soldier would make a comment that, uh, 
I was very nervous because I only we, I knew we only had one thin line to oppose them, and it looked like all the Confederates in the world were coming down on us right now. Uh, there was a soldier right up here at the angle from Pennsylvania who thought that uh, it was very likely that he was not going to survive this day. He thought it was going to be such a horrible collision, and the, the best he was going to hope for was that he might be taken prisoner. I think General Hancock appreciated what his men felt, and he decided that the best way to uh, steal them from what was coming was to put himself on the line as well. And he was going to ride this line. Everybody saw it. Everybody commented on it. It had precisely the, the effect that I think he intended. And he would be here throughout the whole battle. He would get seriously wounded toward the end of the battle. He would uh, be wounded uh, at the southern part of the line. And, uh, of, and of course, that's one of the reasons why the press would like him, too. There's nothing more attractive than a seriously wounded major hero. Um, but he earned all the praise that he got for his act actions this day. And he was born in Pennsylvania. He's a Pennsylvanian. He's from the Philadelphia area. Was he with Pennsylvania troops or? Well, or he, when, when he started out, it, he as a uh, brigade commander, he commanded a brigade that included troops from many many states. But that's consistent with Union Army practice. He didn't have a formal relation, uh, command relationship with with just Pennsylvania troops. But there's somebody here that's very important who did, and that's probably the least known person or the least uh, the person we pay the least attention to on this battlefield and that's General George Gordon Meade the Union Army commander. Uh, General Meade's statue is right up here on Cemetery Ridge and a lot of people just sort of assume it's General Hancock or somebody who's been made famous by the movie but General Meade is a Pennsylvanian from the Philadelphia area until he becomes uh, the, the, a corps commander, the commander of the Union Army Fifth Corps, his, most of his command experience was with an organization called the Pennsylvania Reserves. He commanded a brigade and then a division of the Pennsylvania Reserves. Uh, Pennsylvania had a proud tradition back in 1861. When Abraham Lincoln called for troops, so many Pennsylvanians answered the call that we more than filled our quota. But rather than send all, all these extra recruits home, we began the organization of these extra regiments and called them the Pennsylvania Reserves. Now, ultimately, of course, they would be called into service, and they would be given formal, formal numbers in the Pennsylvania line, the 30th, the 31st, the 32nd Pennsylvania Infantry. But these men, if they had any choice, never called themselves by those designations. They called themselves the 1st Pennsylvania Reserves, the 2nd Pennsylvania Reserves, hearkening back to the time when they answered the call early and showed Pennsylvania's patriotism. George Gordon Meade, from very early on, had been connected with the Pennsylvania Reserves, and it's somehow entirely appropriate that General Meade becomes commander of this army just a couple days before the army marches north into Pennsylvania. Meade has an important part in this, uh, in this day's action that never gets uh, much attention or much credit. What he did the night before was to begin to shuttle troops in the, in the Union Army's rear area behind us here. Uh, he wasn't sure what Robert E. Lee was going to do the next day. He had to make sure that his troops could reinforce the center or the flanks. And he would move his troops around to make sure that his troops could move to wherever the, uh, the hot spot was. He doesn't write a whole lot about it. There are, a lot of the orders were delivered orally. Uh, so, and that's why we don't know a whole lot about it, because he didn't explain what he was doing. But you know who tells us about it? The soldiers themselves. The soldiers who are griping because they, somebody woke them up at 3 o'clock in the morning and made them go a quarter of a mile down the road without telling them why they had to do it. Uh, once you start reading those diaries and you see all kinds of action taking place behind the Union line, it becomes pretty clear that somebody, and it's General Meade, is preparing for this day's action. General Meade talked to General Gibbon the night before, and he said, 
If Robert E. Lee attacks tomorrow, he will attack in your front. General Gibbon's front is right here. And General Gibbon would record that in his, in his uh, military memoirs afterwards. I have a hunch he pro that Meade probably told every commander the same thing. <laughs> but Gibbon gives us the story, and so here it was. Somehow, this was the line that was preparing to rep repulse the charge. And it, was, it might not have been a strong line if you looked at it, but right behind this slope were thousands more Union troops that were within a quick run of this spot if, if in fact, there had been a major breakthrough in the line. Does Meade deserve credit for having won the <coughs> battle, or does he get credit for it? He won't get much credit at all, actually. I think he deserves a great deal of credit, considering the fact that he only became commander of this army on the 28th of June, just a couple days before this battle started. He didn't know where all of his troops were, he didn't have a, his own staff. He had to work with the staff of his predecessor, Joe Hooker. And frankly, they were upset that their boss had been relieved and they have to work with this new guy. Um, he identifies individuals who are, um, he identifies individuals who he trusts, people like Hancock, who come out here in advance and identify this as a really good place to fight a battle. He um, locates his headquarters very smartly. He puts his headquarters down here on the Tawny Town Pike, which is the place where almost any, um, where any courier can find him and where a lot of the Union troops coming onto the battlefield will, will pass. So they will all know where the headquarters are. Meade's a very good officer, a very good commander. But he never gets a whole lot of credit, partly because uh, a lot of folks thought that he should have pushed Robert E. Lee after the battle and perhaps um, try to stop Lee from crossing the uh, Potomac uh, when the battle, right after the battle was, was over. The other reason why we don't hear that much about George Gordon Meade, quite frankly, is because of the arrival of Ulysses S. Grant. Grant is, at this point, at Vicksburg, Mississippi. He's about to capture Vicksburg. A couple months later, he's going to capture Chattanooga and, um, and, and win a great victory there. So he'll be brought east. and. You know, the next big battle for this army after Gettysburg in July of 1863 won't happen until the opening of the great spring campaign of 1864, nine months later. And by that time, Ulysses S. Grant is here. The one battle where George Meade is the big commander that everybody focuses on is here at Gettysburg. He will still be the commander of the Army of the Potomac at Appomattox. So he's still in charge for the rest of the war. But since Grant operates with that army, Grant gets all the attention. And poor George Gordon Meade gets lost to history. It's unfortunate. Now, we talked about what your book is not, which is the whole history of the battle, which we've been talking about. But what is your book about? Well, it always intrigued me that somehow we have, we all have in our minds this notion of something called Pickett's Charge. But if you took a look at the accounts that the soldiers wrote who were here, they described it as a fairly standard infantry assault, like a whole lot of other infantry assaults they saw before and would see after this, this battle. But somehow, this one seems special. It gets a special name. It's called Pickett's Charge. Everybody knows about this one. Who Why is Pickett's it special? Charge? The Southern Press called it Pickett's Charge. In fact, it, we can be more specific. The Richmond Press called it Pickett's Charge. Uh, the Richmond Press was, was, was functioning almost as a national press for the Confederacy, but they were still getting used to their role. And when they saw a local story, a story of local interest, and most of Pickett's men came from the Tidewater in the Piedmont of Virginia, all of a sudden these uh, Virginia correspondents who were trying to write for the whole Confederacy reverted to their original role of writing for Virginia. And even though they knew that Trimble and Pettigrew and all these other folks were involved in the attack, they were writing for the home audience. These were Pickett's men, it was Pickett's division, it was Pickett's charge. So we have a name for this uh, within a couple weeks of this charge, and it catches on.
And that's what the story is really about. How do we take this infantry attack and blow it up into something that has entered national mythology? All of us know about Pickett's Charge. How does that happen? Well, it, it's an intriguing story. We have all the bits and pieces of uh, the soldiers' letters and the soldiers' diaries, but we've only really started to use them as uh, historical tools in the last 50 years or so. The people who really gave us the story were the newspapermen, the journalists north and south, and it's really the southern journalists who gave us the story. The Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's army, had won almost all of its battles up to this point. They lose here at Gettysburg. They want to know why. They're going to dissect this attack. They're going to dissect this battle, try to figure out what went wrong. And as a result, they're going to pay a fine attention to, to all the details. They're going to say that Pickett's men could have broken through. Pickett's men did break through. They could have won. They could have done so much more. But Pettigrew's and Trimble's men uh, failed them and didn't support them. Uh, already, the North Carolinians and the Alabamians and the Mississippians were being blamed for the uh, defeat of this, this attack. And it was, an, like, like with so many first impressions, this was the impression that stuck. Uh, for a while, mostly in July of 1863, there was a great deal of discussion and debate and protest even in the Richmond newspapers, but an awful lot of that didn't really survive uh, July 1863. After the war was over, when the North and South had to try to start figuring out why they won or why they lost, tried to, to write the first histories, uh, the, the, the authors would go and look for good source material. And the first place they almost always went, since the official reports hadn't been published yet, they went to the newspapers. And when they went to the newspapers, they found something pretty amazing. They found out that the Southerners wrote about this attack in great detail, but the Northerners didn't. The Northerners celebrated the victory. They were just jumping up and down because this was the first big battle that the Army of the Potomac had won. And they were celebrating that because it happened to happen just before the 4th of July. It was a great victory. But they, they were so involved with celebrating the victory, they didn't really talk a whole lot about uh, the details of how that victory was won. Well, when the first histories were being written, the greatest source of information about this charge came from those southern newspaper accounts. Horace Greeley, the famous New York, uh, news, uh, the famous New York journalist, would write a, a two-volume work on the, on the Civil War. It would come out in the early 1870s, I believe. And when he got to the Pickett's Charge, he got into the Richmond newspapers. He lifted out whole quotes, almost whole articles, and just put them in his book without even changing so much as a comma. And so we were getting the Southern version. Other historians would follow, and of course they'd go to Greeley's work and the work of other uh, similar journalists who also stole from Southern newspapers, and the story begins to grow. But it's, it's one story, and it's a story with an agenda. It's a story written for Virginians. It's not a national story. Now, you also say that the North Carolinians reported on the, the battle much different than the Virginians did. Well, the North Carolinians were upset all along because uh, they didn't have their own reporters here. Uh, the, there, there weren't any North Carolina newspapers that had, had a significant circulation, so uh, the Army didn't really uh, authorize the presence of North Carolina reporters. The uh, Richmond Press was supposed to cover everybody. The, pro the uh, procedure was usually papers farther south would uh, take extracts from Richmond newspapers and print them in their own papers. It was a process called clipping. So the North Carolinians were upset because they thought that they'd been slandered horribly. And they probably had a point to make there. Uh, certainly not the North Carolinians didn't break and run at first fire as they were often accused of doing. Uh, the North Carolinians had a point. 
and the North Carolinians to this day resent the treatment that history has given them. Uh, the, hist the North Carolinians would be among the first to jump on the bandwagon and say that memory is a dangerous thing because they lost out in the war, war of memory here. Were, Pick were uh, Trimble and Pettigrew from North Carolina? Uh, Pettigrew is from North Carolina. Uh, Trimble was actually born in Maryland, but the, the troops that he will lead in this charge are two brigades of North Carolinians. So he had every reason to take their side in the, in the post-war literary war, and he will do so. Uh, Pettigrew will die two weeks after this battle, but Trimble will speak out very uh, strongly on the side of his North Carolinians. The problem was simply that the North Carolinians and the Mississippians and the Alabamians and those folks didn't have access to the national media the way the Virginians would in the years after the war. And their story never really got told. And by the time that they could yell loud enough for somebody to hear, the first impressions had pretty well set. It was in the history books already. Uh, the battlefield had begun to be marked already. We had a pretty good idea of what Pickett's charge was, and it didn't really include a place for Pettigrew's and Trimble's men, or if they had a place, it wasn't one that they liked. They would put up one heck of a fight to try to get history re rewritten to uh, include them, first of all, and perhaps even get, give them some credit for uh, what they were able to accomplish. But if you take a look at the popular image even today, uh, you can go out and you can find Pickett's Charge t-shirts, but you're not going to find Pickett, Pettigrew, Trimble assault uh, t-shirts. If you, if, you, if you do, they were specially made. <laughs> now you do say in here, uh, North Carolinians had a particularly long-lasting distrust of Virginia. And a little further down, you say North Carolina's commitment to the Southern cause itself seemed to come under fire in the Richmond press. Mm -hmm. How well did the Southern states get along among themselves? And for that matter, how well did the Northern states get along? <laughs> Uh, there was always a friendly rivalry. Uh, in, in the Confederate Army, you would see it a whole lot because individual brigades were made up of troops from uh, a single state. All of uh, Pickett's three uh, brigades in, in his division were all made up of Virginia troops. Uh, the two brigades that um, General Trimble brought in were all North Carolinians. Uh, so there was always some rivalry like that. Uh, in the Confederacy, the big problem, uh, North Carolina seemed to be the problem state for, for a lot of Southerners. Uh, and that was because there were an awful lot of North Carolinians who had uh, opposed secession. Uh, there were an awful lot of um, state politics during the war, especially in 1863, over the governorship, including um, concern that a, a new governor who might come in might want to even think about uh, organizing a separate peace, arranging for a separate peace that would uh, perhaps bring North Carolina back into the Union. It's kind of a sad thing that some of these same North Carolina regiments that charged Cemetery Ridge in July of 1863 will, before the month is out, have to have what they would call a mass meeting, where the regiment would pass res resolutions saying that they were fully loyal to the Confederacy and intended to continue to, fighting its, to fight its battles, regardless of what happened in politics in their home state. It's kind of a sad thing, but North Carolina uh, had just recently drawn a whole lot of, of negative attention from Richmond and from other southern states as well because they didn't seem to be uh, solid team players at this point in the war. Uh, you don't usually see it in the North in quite the same way. You wouldn't see it as a state problem. Uh, the, the target in the North would be the Peace Democrats, known as the Copperheads, who seem to be working to try to end the war th uh, through ways other than a, through a military victory. Was there any such thing as an anti-war movement in the South anywhere? Well, there is one. Uh, for a long time, uh, historians wanted to give it a whole lot of, um, of importance in helping to explain why the South lost the war. 
Uh, there are bits and pieces of evidence that show that there was a, a, some resentment. You can always take a look at things like the bread riots and uh, resistance to the Confederate draft and things like that. There was an organization called the, the, the Heroes of America that was supposed to have encouraged desertions from the Confederate Army. But these are just bits and pieces. It seems clearer now that um, Confederate uh, home front support for this war remained pretty strong throughout, throughout the war and that the Confederacy lost because it was beaten on the battlefield, uh, pure and simple as that. Uh, so yeah, there, there was one, and I'm sure it was important to the individuals who were committed to it, but as a factor in shaping uh, overall Confederate strategy, probably not a big deal. There was a northern anti-war uh, movement as well, and much of it was actually centered here in Pennsylvania, in the coal country, in the anthracite country, which is a, 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 another interesting story. Now, uh, there's a couple more things I want to make sure we talk about, because uh, we're running out of time. Um, uh, but first, I want to ask you about yourself. You are a uh, history professor at Penn State. Yes. What do you teach? I teach all the military history courses. I usually say, if somebody's shooting, I'm teaching about it. I teach an American military history course. I teach an American naval history course with a large Marine Corps history component to it. I teach a course on the Vietnam War. I, uh, I'm a very active part of the Penn State outreach programs where we uh, have a variety of Civil War programs at our Mon Alto campus uh, through our uh, alumni association. We, uh, Penn State is very involved in Civil War history and when we're doing that kind of thing and we're on a battlefield, I'm usually here. How'd you get interested in military history? My father's a retired Army officer. I grew up with him going to Army Reserve meetings the whole, all the time. Um, we were also very active in the VFW as a family, so I was always around uh, military veterans of all different uh, services, and, and I always liked history, and it just sort of came together at a very early age, at least by third grade, that the Civil War was the, the, the thing that fascinated me the most. I didn't always intend to become a history professor. I took a, uh, a bit of a turn as an undergraduate. My undergraduate, under, undergraduate degree is in biology, but where was that? At Allegheny College up in Meadville, Pennsylvania. But ultimately, I returned to my first love, history, and that's where I am today. Where did you grow up? In Pittsburgh. I'm a, I'm a native Pennsylvanian here in, in, uh, on the Penn State faculty. It's kind of an unusual thing, and uh, that's, um, and it's kind of nice to, to come home after being out at various schools during, uh, my, during, during the years I was getting my education. I want to ask you about your dedication of the book here, if I can read it upside down, for Seminar 13 U.S. Army War College, Class of 1994. Can you explain the dedication? Absolutely. Uh, I spent the academic year 1993-94 as the uh, General Harold K. Johnson Visiting Professor of Military History at the U.S. Army War College. Uh, one of my jobs was to act as a seminar historian with one of the uh, uh, seminars. What we had was a group of 16 students uh, that included two foreign officers from Colombia and Russia. Uh, one, one civilian uh, worker for the Department of, of, of the Army and 13 uh, military officers, an Air Force officer and uh, 12 Army officers. That's my seminar. And one of the things that we did was to bring our, sem as, as seminar historians, we brought our seminars down to Gettysburg for a, a, a staff ride here on the battlefield, where we take the battlefield and not just talk about the history, but talk about contemporary lessons that modern soldiers can learn from these old battlefields. And uh, one of the things I did with them was to line them up in the fields just to our west here, and I brought them up over the wall. And that was one of, our, one of the things that happened early in the year, it was part of the bonding process, I guess. And I always promised them that if I finished this book, I would dedicate it to them. And, and I did. And uh, 
I think they're my greatest fans today. One of the characters, of the many characters in the book, one I want to ask you about is uh, Sally Pickett. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Sally Pickett. Sally Pickett is George Pickett's wife. And if there's one person who has made sure that we remember George Pickett today, it's Sally Pickett. An awful lot of people say if you want to find another comparison, take a look at George Custer's wife, Libby Custer. Libby Custer did the same thing for her George as Sally Pickett did for her George. Uh, George Pickett himself will die in 1875, but Sally will be alive until the 1920s. She fancies herself a literary uh, figure. She writes some of the sappiest prose you'd ever want to read. It doesn't wear well now, and I'm not sure it wore well then. But she wrote uh, short stories. She wrote uh, a novel called The Bugles of Gettysburg, which is just so, so, so Victorian and sentimental. It's, it's hard to read with a straight face today. But there was one thing that she always believed, and that was that George Pickett uh, was, an incredibly, and it was an incredible human being and deserved to be remembered as an American patriot. She was also an advocate of national reunion. And she would use her, her name and her position to uh, make George Pickett famous, to make Pickett's men famous, and to put Pickett's men at the forefront of the national reunion uh, movement. The first, one of the first big reunions here at Gettysburg would happen in 1887 on the 24th, 24th anniversary of the battle. Sally Pickett and her son would be here. Uh, along with the, a number of Virginians from Pickett's division, and they would meet here with the, some of the survivors of the Philadelphia Brigade, who actually held the wall at the angle. So one of the first big memories we have of a reunion here at Gettysburg between the blue and the gray has Sally Pickett front and center. She will be writing for as long as she lives. She will be here at the 50th anniversary. Uh, she will be here. She will make many trips to this battlefield, and she becomes uh, probably the greatest fan of Pickett and his and his men. When Sally Pickett died, she was, uh, her remains were cremated and, and were put into an urn that was placed in a mausoleum uh, near Arlington, Virginia. That mausoleum was just recently condemned and all the remains had to be relocated. Uh, Sally had always wanted to be buried with her husband. Her husband, George Pickett, is buried in Hollywood Cemetery down in Richmond. But at the time Sally died, uh, she was not allowed to be buried in his grave with him because he was in the soldier's section and no women were allowed to be buried there. Well, just recently, in fact, just back in March, uh, some of the United Daughters of the Confederacy from the state of Virginia went and took uh, possession of the, uh, the urn in which Sally Pickett's remains were, 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 were contained, and they took it down to Richmond, and in formal ceremonies, they finally gave Sally what she wanted. She was buried in Hollywood Cemetery under the monument that marks the grave of her husband, George Pickett. Now, the other thing I want to ask you about is the reunions, because you write about the 24th reunion and then the 50th reunion. How did they come about, and, and what were they, those occasions like? Well, the 24th, actually, there's three that are kind of important, the 24th, the 25th, and the 50th. And one of them was referred to as a Virginia love fest? That's the 24th. I mean, when, the, um, when Sally Pickett brought Pickett's men up here to Virginia, up, up here to Pennsylvania, this was the first time, really, when you had soldiers of the blue and the gray meeting on one of their battlefields. There had been some efforts between veterans on either army uh, to meet before, but sometimes it would be a matter of Southerners going to Massachusetts or soldiers from New York coming down to Richmond, not actually meeting on their battlefield. That will happen here. And they met in a spirit of goodwill. They met to dedicate some of the monuments that are behind us. The 69th Pennsylvania dedicated its monument during these ceremonies. So did the 71st Pennsylvania. Um, this was a 
this was a, a wonderful um, tribute to the men of both sides, and it almost didn't happen. Pickett's men wanted to build a monument, too, and they wanted to place it inside the angle near these other Union monuments, and there was a huge fight about whether or not it was appropriate for a Confederate monument to be within Union lines. And they ultimately decided against Pickett and his men, and the monument was never built. And for a while, they thought that that would kill the spirit of reunion. But Sally said, no, we're going anyway. And the, a lot of the other Virginia veterans decided that they would come too. And when they got here, it was almost like they forgot about the, the whole flap over the, uh, over the monument. And it was just an incredible ceremony. Uh, P Pickett survivors and the Philadelphians uh, shared great uh, hospitality with each other. They set up camps. They visited their battlefield. They had a wonderful time. But they had such a good time that there was a backlash. And in the, the very next year, in 1888, the silver anniversary of the battle, the Northern veterans took that one over entirely. They said that they didn't want all this sentimentality, all of this uh, God alone knows who was right kind of stuff. They said, no, that doesn't wash with us. We were right, we won, the other side was wrong, they deserved to lose. And so in 1888, it was almost a backlash, a reaction against the reunionism of the 24th anniversary. Sally Pickett refuses to come to the 25th anniversary. Uh, very few of Pickett's men will come to the 25th anniversary. Two years, one year, and then, then the very next year, two reunions, very different tone, very different feel. Pickett's men come to one, they do not come to the other. If you fast forward to the 50th year anniversary, this was a truly national ceremony, a truly a national from celebration. The, from the 50th. That would be one of the classic photographs uh, that would take place. It would be, the photograph was taken just up here, a little bit behind us, up at the stone wall near the 71st Pennsylvania Monument. This became the standard image. It promoted sectional reunion, where the uh, old men in blue and the old men in gray reached across that stone wall that once they had fought over, but this time they, they, they shook hands. How many of them came here for that? Uh, there were, well, it depends. The, the newspapers didn't agree. Some said that there were uh, just uh, maybe 150. Others said that there were as many as 300. At this anniversary, there will be over 50,000 veterans attending. But as far as how many actually participated in the ceremonies at the wall, the numbers are rather fuzzy. But everybody who, who noticed it uh, commented on the emotional pull of the whole thing. And there would be sappy poems and all kinds of things. Uh, and, but one of the uh, enduring moments always came at that hand clasp at the wall. That was the one that not just sealed their personal friendship, but sealed the reunion of the nation. Now, your book is largely about the, the evolution of kind of the history of the history of Pickett's Charge. Does Civil War history keep evolving? I think we, all, we keep finding new things about the, the Civil War all the time. Uh, a lot of families are, are rediscovering uh, their great-grandfather's letters and, and diaries, and they're beginning to donate them to historical repositories. And, and we're finding more and more material that people have never seen before. And every time we find a, another piece of the puzzle, it changes, um, it, it, it affects what we know. Uh, history goes through cycles, and history goes through phases, and there will always be times when uh, one interpretation of a battle or a war or an incident will be, will change over time. But um, that that's, that's to be expected. That's the nature of the business. Uh, every time we look at it, we try to look at it with, uh, with open eyes, try to see if there's something that we should have seen before but didn't. Um, and, and sometimes we find out that maybe we've been looking at something and calling it history when, in fact, it was something else all along. Probably the, one of the most important things that I've learned through doing this book is uh, 
just how powerful the force of memory really is. If you're looking to figure out which is the tougher force, history or memory, I think it's memory. Uh, memory is harder to defeat because once you have a, 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 something that you really want to remember in your mind, if, even if somebody presents you evidence to the contrary, you don't want to give up what you cherish. And memory seems to be the stronger force here. So much of what we know is the product not so much of the historical process, but the, the dreams of somebody, the agenda of somebody, the hopes of somebody. Uh, somebody once said that memory isn't history. It's history the way somebody thought it should have been. And perhaps that's what I'm discovering is true for here at Pickett's Charge. A whole lot of people who have written about Pickett's Charge, without particularly knowing about it, didn't write about the charge. But they were writing about the charge the way some of the soldiers, participants, um, citizens of the time thought it should have been. As a historian, what do you think of the term revisionist history? Well, I think all histories, I think we're all revisionists. Every time we add something new to the puzzle, we've revised the original picture. Uh, you don't have to look at revisionism to mean that we're going to take the, the old interpretation, trashing it completely, throwing it out, and starting from square one. Anytime you add something to the picture that wasn't there, you've revised the picture. I have no basic problem. That's what we do. History is about change, and sometimes the writing of history is about changing what we wrote and, and hopefully making it more accurate and better. How do you come up with uh, an angle on a Civil War book that intrigues a publisher? I mean, uh, there's so many Civil War books. How do you come up with something that, that's new? Well, a whole lot of people don't come up with anything that's new, but that doesn't seem to stop publishers anyway. Um, I was drawn to this from two different uh, directions. One, I always like to write about the Civil War, but the, there's a growing body of historical liter literature on memory and how memory shapes the way we look at the past. Uh, it's been used to discuss uh, how European nations looked at World War I and World War II. It's been uh, discussed to uh, take a look at the way African-Americans look at the slave experience. It's been dis uh, discussed as a way to help us uh, understand the Holocaust. Uh, memory is obviously a very powerful force, but it really hadn't been applied to the American Civil War before. And uh, this seemed to, uh, Pickett's Charge just seemed to be an obvious test case. We all think we know what Pickett's Charge is. We all have that image burned in our mind. But let's take a look at it. Let's strip away all the memories and try to begin at square one. Let's begin on the ground, on the battlefield, with accounts that are, delay, that are dated July 3rd, 1863, or July 4th, 1863. And then let's try to reconstruct. What we find out very quickly is that we cannot reconstruct the actual action. But that didn't stop everybody else from trying to do that. And uh, as long as we remember that what we're reading are attempts, to, are attempts to reconstruct and not necessarily successful efforts to reconstruct, then, we're, then we start off on much, better, much stronger ground. But that's the power of memory. And I think one of the things we as military historians have to do is start paying more attention to the power of memory and to the pull of memory and remember that as we're evaluating our source materials. Uh, that in itself is a fairly new idea. It's really only caught on in the historical profession, say, in the last decade or so. And when I was able to apply some of these ideas of memories to something that we thought we knew everything about, well, that was going to attract attention. Do you have another book in the works? I always have something more in the works. Uh, the next big book is going to be on uh, lesson learning. What did the uh, American military learn from its Civil War? Uh, a book was done on what European armies learned from the American Civil War a number of years ago. It was called The Military Legacy of the Civil War, written by Jay Luvas. 
He always intended to write a book on what the American armies learned from their own Civil War, but he never got to it, and he handed off the project to me. And so the next big project is going to be an examination of what the American armies learned from their own war. I intend to even bring it up to the present because American, the American military still learns from these battlefields. Just yesterday, I had a group of uh, people from the Army's night vision laboratory at Fort Belvoir down at the Antietam battlefield. And you would think, you know, what could a bunch of, um, you know, I affectionately refer to them as techno geeks, so even though uh, they're much more than that, what would these folks uh, learn on a battlefield from 1862? But when you talk about such things as vision, they're interested in night vision, but you can expand the concept of vision to what does a commander see and not see, what can a soldier see and not see. And you take them onto a battlefield and you show them uh, the problems of command and control and you talk about logistics and you talk about any number of things that are still incredibly important to the military today. Uh, an 1862 battlefield does have things to teach. So they still teach troop placement? Troops, troop well, it's, it's not so much tactics. It's not really the tactics, because the tactics have changed uh, because the technology has changed. Uh, the, the Civil War battlefields are very small compared to the modern battlefield, of course. But a whole lot of things are still relevant. The decision-making process. An Army commander in 1863 and an Army commander in 1998 still have to make decisions on what to do. Uh, they have to take a look at what, what their objectives are. They have to decide what they intend to do, what forces they have that will help them do that. Um, what are the risks involved? Is the risk worth the investment of um, the troops' lives. He has to worry about uh, sustaining his force, making sure his troops have food, medical care, things like that. Uh, an awful lot of the things that a, a commander in 1863, Lee or Meade, had to think about, a modern officer would have to think about today. The officer doesn't have to do those, doesn't do those things by himself. He has staff officers to do them. A lot of the people I bring out here are people who might end up in a staff position and would have to uh, look into some of these issues. So uh, we don't look at the tactics, but we look at a whole lot of other things that, that make armies run and made them run in 1863 and in 1998. Do you have a favorite character in this book? My favorite character is somebody who only appears in one, one or two chapters and disappears fairly quickly. He is a, a Virginia infantry captain by the name of Owen, Henry Owen. And he's my favorite character simply because he is the one who made the uh, most emotional impact on me. I was reading some of his letters down at the Virginia State Library a number of years back, and he's a very eloquent writer. I love the way that this, that this generation uses language anyway, but he seemed to be a bit more eloquent than most. He wrote a letter home to his wife on Christmas Eve, 1863, almost six months after the attack. And he wrote it, it was an absolutely stunning letter. It was a letter that comes closer to uh, describing survivor's guilt than I've ever seen before in a Civil War letter. And he talks about a recurrent dream that he has and how when the dark clouds lift, what he sees in front of him are the heights at Gettysburg. But he doesn't see those heights clearly. There is a sort of a mist in front of his face and wherever he goes, that mist stays in front of him between harm and himself. And after the battle is over, that mist takes shape and it's an angel. And the angel says to him, I protected you throughout this, this battle. And at that point, he says, he always breaks down in tears trying to figure out why he deserved the special protection and so many of his men died on the field out here. Um, that was such an incredibly compelling and touching letter. And especially considering that it was the Christmas letter home that uh, I've never been able to forget him 
for, for during the entire research process. If nothing else, I w it got to the point that at least in that first chapter, I was writing that chapter for Captain Owen. This is the cover of the book, Pickett's Charge in History and Memory. Carol Reardon, thank you very much. Glad to do it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.